0: and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Searcy Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern and I am joined for this episode of Close Reads by Heidi White, who some of you have gotten to know in the last few weeks of Close Reads. And I am also joined by our friend Jonathan Rogers. So welcome to the show for the first time, uh, Mr. Jonathan Rogers and welcome Heidi. Thanks for joining me.
1: Oh, so glad to be here. No, thanks, David.
0: As we, um, as we kind of transition into some of the new things that we're doing, we're going to be, you know, bringing, like I said in the last episode, we're going to be bringing in some new voices. Well, I guess the voices aren't new, but they're new to the show. Um, some, some new contributors, <laughs> some people to, to participate in the conversation, and uh, I am very excited that Jonathan Rogers has. Um, he's uh he's willing to just to, just to kind of stoop to our level and and participate in these conversations so you you've listened to the show before though right yeah yeah okay and I think I love, you've been on the show all oh, right well thank you except I... the banter <laughs> <laughs>
1: the fair enough
0: all right moving on so right into uh, Rip van winkle uh, well uh jonathan rogers um i i would for those of you who don't know, I'm going to give a little bit of background. The first thing that I'm going to say is that he is the author of some fantastic books, um, all kinds of books, actually. You've probably heard us talk about his biography of Flannery O'Connor. It's, it's called A Spiritual Biography. Is that what, is that what the subtitle was?
2: Yeah, subta- Yeah, right. A Spiritual. So, yeah, Terrible Speed of Mercy is the title. And subtitle is A Spiritual Biography of Flannery O'Connor. And it's so Excellent. We-
0: when we were talking about O'Connor, I don't know, 18 months ago or something, that book got mentioned a few times. And I, I believe you've been on some other podcasts. Um, you were on with Brian Phillips. You've been on Forma with me. So you yeah. people have probably heard from you before. And I'm sure that many people have read your books. And if if you are a listener that has not picked up a copy of Uh, Jonathan's The Wilder King Trilogy to read with your kids, then Mm -hmm. you should pause this podcast. Well, actually, you could (laughs) probably do it while listening at the same time. Who am I kidding? And go over (laughs) to the Rapper Room's website and you should buy a copy of at least the first book so once you buy the first one, you should probably go ahead and buy the second and third because once you read the first one, you'll want to read the second and third. So just save yourself the clicks. But mm-hmm. you should definitely get a copy of those books. Those are some of my favorite books that I've ever read with my kids. And really, that's the only reason that I wanted him to come on the show because <laughs> we need to get all of his secrets. Um, but Jonathan is also involved with New College Franklin and The Rabbit Room. And what is your role at New College? You teach there, right?
2: I do. I teach there. Yes. Until recently, I was, uh, or I was sort of the interim... Um, Dean of academics, but, uh, but not now I I teach
0: there though. But but you're teaching, I think you said before we started recording that you're teaching creative writing, right?
2: That's right. Creative writing.
0: Okay. Well, I'm excited as we have you on from time to time to kind of get the perspective that the the perspective of someone who is actively writing fiction, we can nerd out on some of the craft stuff. Um, (laughs) and you're also involved with the rabbit room and what's your role over there?
2: Oh, you know, contributor and and just Check kind of, of all trades. Yeah, yeah. Sage. We, <laughs> sage. Yeah. Did you say sage with an yeah. S? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I I just write over there and and you know give talks at various things and yeah just sort of am a a, a person about town. At, okay. right?
0: Perfect, Perfect. Okay. And then the other thing that we should mention is that you have a a newsletter, a weekly email newsletter called The Habit, which is all about uh, writing, like the craft of writing. I get that in my inbox every week mm-hmm. and always enjoy that. Can you give uh, the audience the uh, two second elevator pitch for that, not two seconds, two sentence elevator pitch for the, for that newsletter?
2: I just every week every tuesday i I send out a a letter about whatever's on my mind with regard to writing, so it might some sometimes it's some particular point of grammar sometimes it's about um, um letting go of the kind of um uh, nervous takes that keep us from writing or just anything around the craft of writing and um yeah it's it's a it's one of my favorite things that I do these days.
0: Mm-hmm. How long does it take you to put one of those together? I was thinking about that the other day, or I guess, was it today that today or yesterday that one came out? How, does it... It, this is a Thursday, so Tuesday it came out. Oh, okay, so neither today or yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how, <laughs> how long does it take you to put one of those together?
2: Uh, a couple hours, okay. maybe a little more sometimes. Or okay. us, well, it usually takes a little more. If I start early, it takes a long time. And if I, if I start late, it takes a short time.
0: (laughs) The sooner,
2: the sooner you get behind, the more time you have to catch up. (laughs)
1: That's right. If you wait till the last minute, it only takes a minute. That's That's the
2: mantra around our house. (laughs) (laughs) That's right.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Um, I'm really excited. I'm so glad to
2: be here. (laughs) Thank you for inviting me.
0: Of course. Of course. Um, I'm excited for your participation in this particular story because, and then the story being uh, Washington Irving's Rip Van Winkle, because for some reason I feel like there is a kinship in your writing and Washington Irving's writing. Um, uh. And so I may, I may ask you about that later before we get into the story though. I want to mention a few things. Of course, I need to share a word from our friends over at Augustine college. They're bringing um, their, their uh, liberal arts, their classical liberal arts program to the U.S. for the first time. Um, They're going to have a program that is nestled in the beautiful mountains of Blacksburg, Virginia, and they have some scholarships available for early applicants. Uh, So if you're interested in learning more about what Augustine College is doing, um, and especially what they're doing in in their U.S. campus, then you can head over to truthisbeautiful.org. And again, that is truthisbeautiful.org. They have been doing some really uh, fantastic work up in Canada. Um, I know that it's been... You know, kind of like um, going uphill both ways at times in in some of the work that they're doing. Um, but I'm really excited that they're going to be able to uh, bring that down to the U.S. And um, if you are, if you have a student that is nearing that college age, uh, then I highly recommend you check into them. There's a lot of different um, Christian classical liberal arts programs that are popping up, um, including New College Franklin. And I think that if you like New College, then you'll sense some kind of a kinship between them and what Augustine's doing. Um, so so check them out. Um, I also want to rem- remind people about um, the up. Perpetual Feast podcast, which when we created that name, I never thought it was going to be as hard as it is to say. A Perpetual (laughs) podcast. And that's the conversation that is all Homer all the time with Andrew Kern and Wes Callahan. We just launched their second season, so we're going to be doing that in 10 episode seasons, I believe. And the third episode of season two just launched. You can get that on the, the Circe Institute podcast network feed, wherever you get podcasts, but it also has its own feed if you'd like to subscribe to that and get those episodes pushed directly to whatever app or device you are using. So again, that's a perpetual feast and that's all Homer all the time. I believe that this week's episode was actually all about what is a hero in Homer and those episodes mm-hmm. are getting pushed on Mondays. So that if that's a topic or a conversation you're interested in, or if you want to hear... Um, people as knowledgeable as Wes Callahan and my dad talking about Homer, then I highly recommend that. The episodes are purposefully kept to about 30 to 35 minutes in that range. So they're not too overwhelming because you can only handle too much of those people, uh, so much of those two people talking together without uh, getting a day. Um, But uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But um, check that out again. That's a perpetual feast. And of course, we have the new Close Reads newsletter. So if you want to Um, Get information on what's coming up on Close Reads, such as the stories that we're going to be doing this during this um, American Short Stories unit, or what I'm calling a unit anyway, then you can subscribe to that. If you just um, click in the little description of the podcast, there'll be a link to the newsletter where you can can subscribe. Or if you're on the Facebook page, it's also posted there in the Facebook group. But I know that a lot of listeners are not on Facebook. So it'll be in the description uh, wherever you're getting the podcast, whether it's Podcast Addict or you know um, Stitcher or the Apple app or on the description on our website. So you can find the link to um, subscribe to that newsletter. Um, our next story next week is going to be Ambrose Bierce's An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which is a Civil War mystery story, which I think everyone is going to really enjoy. Um, and it is kind of an, an essential forgotten work of American lit. I mean, I guess if you're a, or an American lit major, you probably know Ambrose Bierce. But among a lot of people, Ambrose Bierce is the kind of writer who I believe was right up there with Mark Twain in a lot of ways and has uh, largely been forgotten, partly because he mysteriously disappeared while on an expedition in the West, which to me makes it seem like he should actually be remembered more. But That's so
1: cool. I've never uh-huh. read him before. This will be my first time reading it.
0: You're into people disappearing randomly while on expeditions?
1: Yeah, I think that that's kind of. I mean, that's a legacy, right? If you're exactly. like you said, that's memorable.
0: It's true. It's true. I all never right. knew about that. I never knew he disappeared. Yeah. yeah, that he just he went off and that was it. They never heard from him again.
2: Really?
0: Well, yeah. I mean,
2: well,
0: Maybe somebody did, but you know, yeah. Right. Not been remembered. Whoever it was, that guy got forgot too. So, um, yeah. all the next right, talk. Let's talk Rip Van Winkle by Washington Irving. And my first question Mm -hmm. is the obvious one. How familiar are you, either of you, with uh, either Washington Irving or with Rip Van Winkle? And Heidi, I'll let you go first on that one.
1: Sure. I have read... Jonathan and I were talking about this while we were waiting for you to get on the air. Um, I have read Rip Van Winkle before, but not as a piece of literature or short Mm. story like I read it this week. I Mm. I have it in a collection of fairy tales that I read to my kids. Okay. And so yeah. I've always just read it like a children's story, like a folktale. And mm-hmm. I discovered it was an adapted version which I didn't know. But I'm actually I'm very familiar with the legend of Sleepy Hollow which I teach every cycle uh at, in my school. I teach it whenever we're doing uh, American literature. So and around you know around Thanksgiving I was not Thanksgiving around Halloween time we're looking for kind of a creepy, cool story, yeah, yeah, and so I, I yeah. always, I always teach *Legend of Sleepy Hollow*, which I love.
0: Yeah, that is a that is an extremely underrated story from mm-hmm. a literary perspective. I, I mean, I thought about doing that one, but it's it's more widely read than Rip Van Winkle, so I thought let's, mm-hmm. um, let's let's look at Rip Van Winkle. What about you, Jonathan?
2: I had never read Rip Van Winkle until this week.
0: Okay, mm-hmm. well, um, *Sleepy Hollow*. Have you read that one? Well, this is embarrassing. No, I haven't. <laughs>
2: um, no, I've, I've not read Sleep, Legend of Sleepy Hollow. I want to. I mean, I, um, and I loved Rip Van Winkle. And of course, I knew the story. Everybody knows the idea of the guy who right. yep. and wakes yep. up 20 years later, but but I'd never actually read it. You know, didn't have any idea about the sort of political commentary that's that's mm-hmm. embedded in it, that, that sort of mm-hmm. thing.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, and um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to talking about it.
0: So I think one of the things that we should first sort of explain, I guess, is that there's this This is sort of a conceit that Washington Irving is using in how he tells the story. Because he published a book called in 1820... 1819 or 1820, I forget. I should have actually got that in stone. But he published a book called The Sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon. Um, and he... he I, I believe that even gave it a different author's name on the title page. I can't, I can't, I've seen original, I've seen copies of the original and I believe that even why, I don't think Washington's Irving was on the cover or on the title page. Yeah, something you're weird. right,
1: David. In fact, I don't know what his uh, name is supposed to be, whatever his student name was, but the initials are DK. So it was like, oh, David Kern. So, huh. yeah. Uh,
2: the I, I assumed the DK in those notes <laughs> stood for something Knickerbocker.
1: Oh, maybe it maybe it is, but it it I, I, the framing device is what you're talking about when you're talking about the conceit, right? Is that right, David?
0: Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So mm-hmm. when he when he when he writes these stories, he part of the story is the introduction, like mm-hmm. a little foreword at the beginning and the little afterward that he puts in there. So yeah, you, can, you have to include those in what you're reading. I know a lot of people, and a lot of my students in particular over the years have. Conveniently skipped those portions, which uh-huh. you're really missing. Because part of the story is the Jeffrey Crayon character, like the author of this whole work, this whole book that he's creating, is a character in and of himself. Um, so I, we should keep that in mind as we talk. Mm-hmm. Um, DK, I, by the way, is Diedrich Knickerbocker.
1: Okay, yeah, right, right.
0: Posthumous writing of Diedrich Knickerbocker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there and then, when you when you read a story like this, there are all kinds of references that weren't you know cultural references that we're not all going to get, um, but that's sort of the fun of it, um, in my in my opinion. You know, if you want to follow the trail of of literary you know cultural crumbs, you can. But not knowing is almost <laughs> sort of the fun of it, in my, for me anyway. Um, but Jonathan, I'm as a as a writer of fiction and as someone who really gets into the craft, yeah. was there something about what washington irving's doing here and his skill as a writer that stood out were there any um any approaches that he was taking or uh, things that he was doing that excited you
2: well you know one thing that i don't know if it's maybe the opposite of exciting me i i um could very much relate to is that this story is it's not quite a story it's a it's a Hmm. great situation Hmm. And, Hold on. and so this this situation of what would happen if a man went to sleep for 20 years and then woke up um that's a that's a fabulous situation and i've so, you know in my own writing i feel like i'm better coming up with situations than actually you know turning that into a plot I mean, i've got all these what seem like brilliant ideas for stories but i haven't been able to pull the trigger on them because i don't really have a, a story i've just got a great situation and that mm. feels like what's mm-hmm. going on here. Um, it's also interesting to see the ways that other people have taken that situation you know and sort of stood on the shoulders of Washington Irving and mm-hmm. and told a real story uh, like for instance you- the movie 13 going on 30 oh,
0: yeah yeah
2: you know that, that's a, there's real character development there's real there are some interesting things i mean it's funny to to you know offer this this endorsement of 13 going on 30 cuz <laughs> <laughs> but, but as I was thinking about it, in some ways, that that's a that story, the story itself, which probably couldn't have happened without Rip Van Winkle, seems to be a step beyond Rip Van Winkle in terms of storytelling.
0: So I'd, I'd love to dive into this a little bit more. Mm-hmm. When you when you talk about the idea of a situation as opposed to a story, what are you suggesting is the difference? Like, what is the principle of a story? as opposed to what we're getting here. Like, or I guess another way of saying it is, what is Rip Winkle lacking that keeps it from being a full-on story? Is it just plot? And so there's a specific plot element? Plot.
2: I mean, it, there's the the this... Oh, shoot. I'm going to get notes as my internet connection is unstable. Can you hear me all right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes.
2: Uh-huh. Okay, sorry. Um, I guess just the fact that if this were the... I was surprised this was as short as it was. It felt like I've got this, we've got this great setup. We've got this, guy. he fell asleep for 20 years and now some crazy stuff's going to happen. <laughs> and the only crazy stuff that happened is he realizes he's been asleep for 20 years and yeah. um, mm-hmm. he doesn't, you know, there's the joke at the end about, you know, he was apolitical. You know, he didn't care about his freedom except now he was free from his, from his, you know, wife. Mm-hmm. Um, we never actually meet, you know, mm-hmm. right. Uh, that's right. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about that, but, but he's, he's, um, yeah, it's just not a, it's not a fully developed story. And, and that's not even, I, I'm not exactly complaining about this. Um,
0: it only a great partial criticism. It's right, it's, <laughs> it's a partial,
2: it's a partial criticism. And, and, in it's, um, but it feels like it, it feels like this could be the, the first, chapter of a whole novel mm-hmm. about, you know, what happens when a man is this displaced um, when he finds himself, you know, in, in a, uh, in this situation. Um, uh, Andy Ocinga, um the, the songwriter has a whole concept album called um, Leonard, the lonely astronaut. I don't know if y'all know that record, but it's great. Mm-hmm. And the, the conceit behind that record is a man a uh, astronaut named Leonard goes off into outer space. With um, he's his wife has died and he's he's lonely and he's and he's angry and he's sad. He goes off in outer space with the knowledge that when he comes back, thanks to I don't know theory of relativity or something, he's going to come back and everybody he knows is going to be dead and he's going to be living in the next generation. Hmm. And um, that's another sort of Rip Van Winkle kind of kind yeah. of situation. And there's so many things to do with this situation um, that I assume uh, Washington Irving introduced this situation. Maybe maybe he got it from somewhere else. I don't know. Um, but it's almost like it almost feels like he has introduced this idea, and now there are other people who can take that idea and say there are things we can do with that.
0: Hmm. Well, I, I do know that. Well, and I think one of the key things to. To think about, or one of the key reasons that stories is is important within the sort of canon of American literature is because it's sort of an Americanized version of, well, I don't Mm -hmm. even know if that's a good way of putting it. There were originally, basically, every literary tradition or storytelling tradition, every folklore tradition has a story that in some way involves a character falling asleep and some strange passing of time. Uh There's, There's Chinese versions, there's German versions. American, early American literature is very Germanic, you know, which mm-hmm. makes sense because it's very, many of the people particularly in that part of the world were of German heritage. Um, and so the principle, many of the principles that kind of define American literature spring up because of situations and themes and motifs that were, that are very, you know, European. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think probably this, the the seed of a situation comes from the, the, the German tradition that that Irving is is calling on, mm-hmm. and that's probably good. the French French tradition as well. Um, Heidi, you talked about the idea of it being in a fairy tale book.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: yes. In, yes. How does it fit for you, or how does it compare for you to the other fairy tales that you're reading in those books?
1: Well, that's such a great question, and I, I I think I didn't tell you to ask me that question, but it's perfect because that was one of the things I wanted to point out on this podcast is that this story is very genre-bending in in a lot of ways. It has, you, you mentioned the old Germanic folk tales, uh, that there's a source document called Peter Krauss, I think, or Strauss, I went and read it the other day, um, and it is very similar, but the magical elements of the earlier stories that were probably Washington Irving's source uh, are so much more magical than this one the emphasis is on the magical creatures that put peter kraut to sleep right Mm. so that's but here we have an american story that it's almost as if that those magical elements are like this little interlude in between two realistic situations Mm. um you know the guy with the hen who has a hen pecked uh the, the guy with a wife who is henpecking him, him and he has to obey her and he's all these kids and he's poor and lazy, right? That you have early American emphasis on the Protestant work ethic. So that's gonna bring up some yep. associations with the readers at the time, uh, right? He's lazy, but he's also good natured. You know, Europeans were much more forgiving of the lazy guy than the early Americans were. <laughs> uh, and then he goes into the mountains and has this magical experience. But when he comes back, he's immediately immersed in politics again. And Jonathan, you brought that up. Uh, yeah. So it's there's this realism on either side of what is almost passed over in the magical elements. And I, I just find that really interesting. So instead of it being another, like an American folktale, it, it really becomes more of a realistic exploration of politics and relationships. I find that fascinating.
0: One of the things that I think is unique, or or true, well, uniquely true of American literature in the first century, say, of its existence, mm-hmm. is this sort of uh, the way it sort of tries to tread a line between realism, which became one of the yes. you know the became a de- defining um, trait among American literature, and the sort of magical realm that you're saying that yes. you're talking about that there it's constantly trying to kind of toe that line i mean you even see it in twain in some ways um but you see it mm-hmm. in, in hawthorne yeah. and you see it um i, I mean i think you I, I think you even see it in some ways all the way into the 20th century where you have yes like you you can still see it in i mean I, this is a whole essay I'd have to write to explain what I'm saying here, so uh-huh. I'm not going to back this up right now. But I think you even see it in some ways in like uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald um, because uh-huh. there's, there's a, that seems to be the constant tug that these writers are often sort of trying to. And you know what? You kind of see it in Jonathan Rogers' work as well. Now that I think about it, um, yeah. <laughs> do you? <laughs> yeah, that's true. What, what do you mean by that? <laughs> what do I mean by that? I see it in your work. Yeah well i mean
2: oh yeah like the the prophet showing up that kind of stuff
0: yeah or even like um you know you have these these creatures that like the fiji folk that seem sort of magical it was all rooted in very rooted in a very specific place and i think that that's one of the things that is you really see um you really see as an important thing to american writers is the place they're Mm. very true to a um, realism of place. So weird things can happen, but they happen in a specific context. Um, So when you read even the German fairy tales, it's just sort of a vague forest, right? But what's unique about, you know, if you read Hansel and Gretel or whatever it is, they're just kind of wandering in some German, French, Gaelic forest or whatever. But if you... And and well, let me say this. It does have trees and shadows and stuff like that. But Washington Irving and in this story in particular, it's a very specific place. And it's a very specifically American place. It's and and,
1: yeah. And even the ghosts or the the magical creatures, it turns out, are just spirits of the founders of the place who are coming to watch over it.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 That's right. Go go you were gonna say something.
2: I was going to say the exact same thing Heidi said. So now,
1: now,
0: (laughs) well, I think, I I, I think it's, I think it's totally, it's, it's not a race, (laughs) Heidi. I, I, um, (laughs) although if my kids have taught me anything, I said, everything's a race. Um, Everything's
1: a competition.
0: So I think it might even be worth looking at some of what he's doing here. Like, if we look at the first two paragraphs, for example, at well, let's after the little introduction, we can skip that. Even though I would tell my, I would tell people not to do that when they're reading it, but the part that begins with "Whoever has made a voyage up the Hudson," I think if yeah. we, I think reading these, these two paragraphs are important because he chooses to start the sentence. I mean, to start the story with these for a reason. Things mean things, right? Jonathan, would you mind mm-hmm. reading the first two, those, those two paragraphs starting there? So the paragraph beginning "Whoever has made" and then the next one at the foot of.
2: Yes. Um, let me see here. Sorry.
0: Um, oh, you're good. You're good. Because I'm asking you to skip a portion. And we're, we're, we're all using internet versions. So um, in mine, there's like brackets around the introductory part. Um, okay, but the now I swiftly
2: with... went to the wrong place. OK, let's see. Here we go. Here we go. Now I'm ready for action.
0: All right. <laughs> Take it away. away. Two paragraphs.
2: Whoever has made a voyage up the Hudson must remember the Catskill Mountains. They are a dismembered branch of the great Appalachian family and are seen away to the west of the river, swelling up to a noble height and lording it over the surrounding country. Every change of season, every change of weather, indeed every hour of the day produces some change in the magical hues and shapes of these mountains, and they are regarded by all the good wives far and near as perfect barometers. When the weather is fair and settled, they are clothed in blue and purple and print their bold outlines in the clear evening sky. But sometimes, when the rest of the landscape is cloudless, they will gather a hood of gray vapors about their summits, which in the last rays of the setting sun will glow and light up like a crown of glory. At the foot of these fairy mountains, the voyager may have described the light smoke curling up from a village whose shingle roofs gleam among the trees just where the blue tints of the upland melt away into the fresh green of the nearer landscape. It is a little village of great antiquity, Having been founded by some of the Dutch colonists in the early times of the province, just about the beginning of the government of the good Peter Stuyvesant, may he rest in peace. And there were some of the houses of the original settlers standing within a few years, built of small yellow bricks brought from Holland, having latticed windows and gable fronts surmounted with weathercocks.
0: Mm. So
2: that's gorgeous. And yeah. I, that's beautiful. I, it's so specific to the Catskill Mountains. And also so magical it's it's like he's committed to finding the magic that is there in the world where he exists.
0: Yes, and so that I think is you're getting at something really important there because mm-hmm. he is creating he is creating a picture of a place that is very real, it's very specific and it's a place that he clearly Admires you don't you can't describe something right. like that if you don't care about it right or if you don't yeah. at least if you don't see it clearly, but mm-hmm. so it, so there's the sense of realism there right um, and the even even some of the metaphors are are very realistic but he drops in certain like key words like those magical hues uh-huh. there's, yeah. the hood, there's the hood yeah. there's the hood of gray vapors right. and the fairy mountains and so it, yes. it does he is he is he's either seeing the magic in them, or I think there's a case to be made that maybe Mm -hmm. he's trying to imbue them with magic. Like he's trying to help people, at least other people see them as magic. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that Mm -hmm. that's why I think that, you know, one of the things that you have early on in American literature is, you know, you you have them trying to create a American voice or to create Mm -hmm. a literature out, an American literature out of the traditions from which everyone came. So, you know, mm-hmm. in the 1750s, there America really, America was some amalgamation of Britain and France and Germany with a few Spaniards thrown in there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there wasn't a unique um I mean they didn't even there wasn't a unique way of 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 thinking about literature, of creating literature. It was just sort of following on the previous traditions. But then you have them as they're going, because of because of the places that they're in being unique to themselves, you have these writers trying to carve out a uniquely American voice. And part of that is tying it to mm-hmm. the specific place. You know, you couldn't, you wouldn't write, you can't write Pride and Prejudice in the place that Rev. Van Winkle is in, right? And you couldn't really write the same version of Rev. Van Winkle in the place that Pride and Prejudice is in. Um, right, right and and
2: you know it's, it, and david it's it's interesting to me also that he that it, before rip van Winkle goes to to sleep he's in this very dutchified version of america and yeah, he wakes up in american america
0: mm-hmm. and, it, and it, right. it's orienting
2: to very, him. the bricks were brought over from um holland in the in the village, when when he goes to sleep, when he wakes up, it's new buildings or some, some of the new buildings, and and uh, and the people with Dutch names are kind of fading away. They're, I mean, there's there are still Dutch names, but but the the Dutchiness here, even you know, I, it never occurred to me that Catskill was a Dutch name until I saw it spelled here this way. Uh-huh. I assumed it was some sort of Native American name.
1: Right.
0: Well, I mean, well
1: that's in the framing device that's that's in the conceit that he has uncovered you know Dietrich Knickerbocker is claiming that he's uncovered all these documents that will give us a history of this
0: place Uh and it kind of lends it it kind of creates an American folklore whereas they were probably telling you know the stories they were probably telling their kids were the same stories that the Germans that they were telling them back in the old Mm -hmm. world, right? Whatever the stories were from England or, or Germany or, or wherever it was. I mean, you didn't have the Italians in the same degree yet, but. uh, I think you were going to say something a minute ago and do you remember?
1: Um, I think I was just going to point out that idea that the framing device, uh, was made such a point that this is, uh, factual, uh, And with Dietrich Knickerbocker, he, uh, in this conceit, this framing device that frames these stories and ties them together, he's making the claim that this is, uh, that there have been these documents uncovered that give a history of the area. And to the point that you made earlier, Jonathan, about it being a situation uh, versus a story, he addresses that specifically when he says, um, The result of these researches was a history of the province during the reign of the Dutch governors. Uh, So he's clearly wanting to connect, Washington Irving's clearly wanting to connect his work to uh, the the Dutch colonies. Um, There have been various opinions as to the literary character of his work. And to tell the truth, it's not a whit better than it should be. It's chief merit. And there's like a series of hilarious, this is, I, I love this couple of sentences I'm about to read. It's He's chief merit. He's talking his is own writing scrup- here is the great part. Yes, his own writing. It's brilliant. And then he says, it's, chi- it's chief merit is its scrupulous accuracy, which indeed was a little questioned on its first appearance, but has since been completely established. And it is now admitted into all historical collections as a book of unquestionable authority.
2: <laughs> That's great. <laughs> he
1: just, He sounds fun, like the kind of guy you want to have over at your party, because he is just mocking himself, you know, a little bit here, which I love. Uh, So I like the tie-in with the realist, that the establishment of this American realism, along with these old European folk tales with these magical elements, and. The, the tying of this, almost like a Shakespearean green world, right? In which the people disappear mm-hmm. to and have some kind of huh. transforming experience and then get to come yeah. back to their real life and adjust to it again. Like as you That's, like it. Is that, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or Midsummer Night's Dream. Right, they disappear, right. they have all these, these transforming experiences and then they come back to a better life, which <laughs> If Rip and had come Rip back with a donkey's head on,
0: you probably would have. It would have exactly.
1: Made- yes, <laughs> we will call it Bottom's Dream because it has no bottom, right? So, <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> um, so this is Rip Van Winkle's experience, but as you guys brought up, it's very disorienting to him. It's not. It is transformative, but it's not wholly pleasant. So that's that's a new element to those stories than the European versions.
0: Why do you? This is a little bit of a... This will take us a little bit of far afield. Um, mm-hmm. For either of you, which... Why do you think that American literature sort of became uniquely concerned with realism?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Jonathan, That's a great question. You've done some studying of various American writers, including Flannery O'Connor. Um, and, and, you know, as a creative writing teacher, um, maybe you have something... Um, some in, insight into the instinct that would have led to, led to this, but, but it, it does seem like, I mean, whether you're thinking about you're starting with the Puritans up through the transcendentalists and, and, and on from there that, that there is a sort of they're absorbed with, with this idea of realism and they led it in some ways they led the charge of, of realism. Um, is there something about being American that fit that fed that you think?
2: That's a very interesting question. I, I don't feel ready to, ready to answer it.
0: Um, mm-hmm. Well, on a podcast, you just talk about, you just talk. You just <laughs> like,
2: right. I, I'm just, I'm, just I'm, I'm just trying to find a way in to talk about it. you. <laughs> why, don't, why don't you uh, tell me what you're tell me What you have in mind. How do you, how
0: know? <laughs> well, do you, can take a crack at this too, if you want. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I,
1: It's a great question, and there's lots of speculation on this in the literary field of scholarship, as you guys all know, and I'm sure we've read about it and come up with our own ideas. I do think some of it has to do with that uh, Protestant kind of approach to the world. We had Calvinists come and establish um, our nation uh, in the colony days, and that psyche was very much concerned with understandable truth right we want to know we want to define we want to put into categories uh, we want to understand God in the world so there's not a lot of room for magic uh, even as entertainment in that um, in that mindset uh, and so and then also we have have this uh, Protestant work ethic that I addressed before that you work hard, and you get rewarded and so when if you have that mindset you don't want fairies and sprites and gnomes coming and messing that all up right you want to see how that (laughs) plays out so um, that i I do think that there's something really deep in the american psyche yes that kind of resists that idea of Let's explain things by some kind of deus ex machina, some kind of outside influence. Let's let's put it into a category in which we can understand and control outcomes. And I think that that did in some ways leak into our literature.
2: What was it that that the, um, early in in the story, it, it comments that Rip Van Winkle would tell the children stories of ghosts and witches and Indians?
1: Yes, hmm. <laughs>
2: oh interesting and, uh-huh. you know, sometimes I have thought in terms of maybe we don't make up stories about ogres mm. in American literature because we have grizzly bears mm. and alligators and
1: uh-huh.
2: and um you know uh, it's such a long tradition in and and, and not an altogether a fair tradition of portraying Indians as your native american
0: right. has these these um uh, other world human yeah people. yeah mm. well yeah that's interesting well there's there's a wildness you know most of european literature comes out of i don't well for lack of a better term and I, this is a vast oversimplification a lot of european literature comes out of civilization mm. um, but american <laughs> literature is kind of the opposite in a lot of ways like it's about like Trying to carve civilization out of the wilderness. Yeah. Yeah. So instead of creating a a language or a voice or a canon um, Mm -hmm. out of centuries of European tradition, like like obviously Shakespeare, the the Shakespeare comes out of a much longer tradition. You know whether it goes back to Chaucer and way back to the Romans and so forth. American literature is very much about carving that canon out of like bark. And, yeah. um, and, and rock and stone. Um, and so it, it's going to be naturally con- sort of consumed by th- those things that it's constantly facing. So if you yeah. live in civilization, you're probably gonna be much more enamored with like the unknown that's out there.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah
0: but in American literature the un, what what what's there is no unknown that's out there quite the same way like we're surrounded mm-hmm. you Daniel Boone we told stories about Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett fighting lions and bears or whatever or mountain lions and bears and and that wasn't like it really wasn't that far fetched i mean they did <laughs> yeah. and uh, i mean maybe you you do right. bake it a mean, little bit of a tall tale but
2: yeah but, but think about the differences between you know a Paul Bunyan story. Here's a man who had a big blue ox, and he could chop down this this number of trees, and you know, right? You certainly, plenty of hyperbole in American storytelling.
0: Sure, sure. sure. Uh,
2: but right. hyperbole is a whole different thing from you know stories about sprites and notes.
1: Absolutely. Well, and what's Daniel? I mean, what's Paul Bunyan doing? Is he's doing work? Is he's? I mean, it's manifest destiny, right? We've got trees yeah. trees to cut down because we're going west.
0: Yeah. There's and that, it's daniel boone is david crockett so even the tall tales that yeah. come out about them yes they're crossing the mountains they're they're moving on to the next place they're they're
1: right they're laying railroad there. tracks yes yeah. and i'm really interested in what you said jonathan about the land being like wild enough almost it yeah. has its it's it, it must be tamed and it, why why make up a story about Ugh an ogre when you have, we, there are people actually out there fighting grizzly bear i think that's so interesting and that does tie into there's so much to describe with our senses in the american landscape in these early stories
2: yeah yeah when i was writing the wilder king books book two i, I originally was going to have some sort of swamp goblin in book two and my wife's mm-hmm. like got alligators what do you need with a swamp dog <laughs> you, know, you, you don't you don't need that and i thought huh. yes, that's exactly right huh and so you know there, there aren't any critters in that book that don't exist in in you know the actual american south right,
0: right. but that doesn't you know that doesn't preclude the imagination right like letting mm-hmm. our imaginations get away with ourselves is also an extremely american thing whether right. you're looking at you know um the 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 um the witch uh, thinking the women were witches in New England, what was the um mm-hmm. I'm drawing a blank here. Salem, Public, Salem, Salem, Salem yeah. the Salem witch trials. Publicly, publicly, publicly yeah. drawing a blank. Um, <laughs> uh, um so this whether it's the Salem witch trials or whether it's um the stories that came out of that, then the Hawthorne stories or right. um you know the stories of you know i mean even to a certain extent stories like moby dick or whatever it's it's all it's definitely it's well it's a human pastime but it's certainly an american pastime to let our imaginations get away with ourselves but it's still rooted in in this you know the natural world that you're talking about it's rooted in reality so it doesn't keep us from thinking oh this is a bigger thing but but that's where the hyperbole comes in right
1: right right Right. Well, in Rip Van Winkle and Legend of Sleepy Hollow, there is magic and nobody questions that. The townspeople are like, OK, well, <laughs> great. Like, we accept ask you your story. That. <laughs> so that there still is here in this early. That's why I see it is so fascinatingly genre bending. Right. It's half uh, partially developed American realism and, and half European folktale. Kind of shoved into one story, and that's how Legend of Sleepy Hollow is as well. I, I find that really interesting. There's, you know, what's the next step then? Hawthorne, like you said, right? And then Mark Twain, and then you know, kind of down the road.
0: Well, you forgot the transcendentalists in, in between there. Well, well, the defining. I yes, <laughs> but I mean, I, I know you weren't trying to give the whole overview of American Lit, but. Right. one day we got to do something we got to talk about the transcendentalists because oh, yeah responding to puritanism and, and exactly them responding to them i think so but right um do you what do you make of the ending then i mean do you think that i kind of lost track of what i was going to ask but sure mm-hmm. um what were you just you, you were just saying that um what were you just saying Yeah,
1: <laughs> i don't know something profound but talk about right. the genre bending element Yeah. So
0: do you find that the ending is disorienting? Like, so you sort of expect the people, what you sort of expect the people to be like, Oh, he's crazy. Like to give you some Mm -hmm. kind of resolution, but they just sort of accept his story.
1: They do. Yes. And um, I'm betting a lot of modern readers are, uh, or critics can go back to Rip Van Winkle and make the case that he's an unreliable narrator and Rip Van Winkle really did just disappear for 20 years to get away from his wife and then showed up after he heard she was dead, right? So yeah, yeah. you could... It an, or,
0: or it's all a dream. I mean Yes,
1: or it's all a dream. Yeah, all those things. Um, but I think the story is pretty clear that he fell asleep. I think we're supposed to accept that he really did sleep for 20 years. Do you uh, agree with that, then,
2: Jonathan? I do, yeah. I, I completely agree with that.
1: Um, uh, so then when he comes back, I agree with Jonathan completely that it is... Uh, an abrupt ending. That he could have taken this in so many different, more interesting ways than just then he figured out the American Revolution happened, and then he made new friends and the end. Like that, <laughs> that could have been so much more to delve into. Uh, but I, I think for the genre, which is uh, the folk tale, he had this experience and he comes back and and that's the end. We speculate about that then. So. Um, but I wish there's a little more there.
2: Yeah. Hey, David, do you agree that that we're supposed to take this at face value? That he really did fall asleep and
0: um, I I I don't know that he cares. Yeah, so like, I am not sure that
1: mm-hmm.
0: I think what Riven. I mean, I think what Washington Irving is trying to do. I think that the so okay. I think Jeffrey Crayon says you take it at face value. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Riven Van Winkle doesn't care how you read it, right. because I think right. what he's sort of trying to do is is create that American folklore. And yes. so whether you you know there you don't give answers in stories like that, like it doesn't really matter if Hansel and Gretel actually happened. You know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that's not really the point. It's a story that we tell ourselves. It's it's um there it's there's magic that's got some truth at the heart of it, right? Um, right. So I don't. I mean, are we actually? Does he, does he, uh, does it matter? I don't, I don't know okay. that that's not the right. That's not a very, uh, <laughs> that's not the answer you were looking for. I don't think uh,
2: it was a real question,
0: but the, mm-hmm. but the, but there are, the clues in the story, I think suggest like with just within the story itself, I think that the, that we're supposed to believe that, but, but the moment when he falls asleep is really weird. Like all the yeah. stuff with, with yeah. the with the, the spirits or the fairies or whatever we're gonna call them. I mean, we could read that right and break down the gaps in it <laughs> if we want to. Yeah. Um
1: Right. It's but, beautifully written with the the roll, like the nine pin balls rolling like distant thunder in the cliffs. Like it's really a lovely miss, mysterious scene.
2: Yeah. And I, I love the way it handles point of view. Um mm-hmm. there when when uh, when Rip Van Minkle wakes up we're not really given much in the way of clues mm-hmm. that, he's, that he didn't just wake up the next day. We, we are allowed to see what he sees. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the fact that we all know this story already makes it kind of hard to, to even imagine what it, what it would be like to read this without knowing what was going on.
1: Right.
2: Um, but I do love the way we're not, we don't even get a little wink that, that there's something else going on besides the fact that he just fell asleep and woke up the next day. Mm -hmm. And that it it unfolds to the reader in much the same way that it it unfolds to the um to the um character and that's Mm -hmm. one way that this is different from a fairy tale it has those kinds of fictional techniques um you know that that specific use of point of view
0: i don't think you see that in a fairy tale Mm -hmm. no that's true it's much more kind of bird's eye view
1: Right. Well, you yeah. hardly ever even know anybody's name in a fairy tale, right? It's the, the, the tailor or the second yeah. son of the butcher or the princess or the, you know, the king that's of the right. land yeah. that, so then again, you have this. Or at American most you know realism. the main characters. Yes. Like, you know, Snow yes. White,
0: but the movie are the ones that had to invent the names of the dwarves. Right. <laughs> that's not, that's not
1: exactly. Right. Yeah. And even Snow White is more of a title than a name, right? <laughs> and True. So that, Cinderella that is a title. You
0: don't know her real name.
1: Yes. So fairy tales tend to be universal. You can put yourself into them. Uh, you can, they 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 feel very archetypal, whereas this story is rooted in place and it has people's names and a, a tavern that has a certain color door and things like that. Yeah. But at, to Jonathan's point, this is a fiction like this. This is a, a short, a fictional short story, not a tall tale or a fairy tale because of those kinds of details that are given uh, about the specific characters in place. I think the most interesting part of the story by far is when he sees his son and he doesn't know who he is anymore. I think that's fascinating. <laughs> his son
0: is himself, yeah. Yes,
1: yeah. and he's like, maybe I'm not even me. Like that's, maybe that's me and I'm somebody else. And and that, I I just think that is so a brilliantly that? written section.
0: So what does that mean? Go on, the, talk, talk yes. about that. I'm just going to sit here. <laughs> Two of you talk about that for a little while.
2: Uh,
1: well, I mean, did that stand out to you too, Jonathan?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, again, he is letting us, um, if I were teaching this in a creative writing class, I would talk about Mm -hmm. the way he shows us what Rip Van Winkle sees with his eyeballs Mm -hmm. and then makes the meaning from that. But he he starts with the visual and, and that visual becomes a way for, for Rip Van Winkle, the elder to, um, Make sense of his confusion, mm-hmm. right. and when I say make sense of it he, he he makes bad sense of it he gets it wrong, mm-hmm. um, but so much is tied to that to that visual, what he 's actually seeing with his eyeballs and
0: yeah and we, yeah yeah
2: we, we, we and, and that 's another place where we just see what's what 's coming what he's what 's coming in through his eyeballs and um and that 's the way that um, that meaning gets made I, I just i love it, I think it 's great.
0: Yeah. yeah. One of the great things that he does is there is, is that by revealing to us only what the character sees, you know, a little bit at a time, mm-hmm. it, it forces us to draw conclusions about what he's seeing along with him, which you said, but we only you know, it by, by him drawing one conclusion, it forces us to determine whether or not we agree with him. So in some right. ways it, it, right. it can put us, put us in conflict with him. Not yeah. not true conflict, but conflict in terms of how we're interpreting what's going on. Right. Um, yeah, because at,
2: at that point in the story, we, we're pretty clear what's going on, even though he isn't. Right. right. So, yeah. so we have that split between his vision of things and our vision of things, which is you know one of the most interesting things that happens in a, in a short story or a piece of fiction anyway.
0: I do think right. that it, it allows us to kind of our natural instincts as a reader hmm. to come into play. So if our natural instinct as a reader is to sort of assume that things are sort of magical, Right. then we're going to lean that way. Mm-hmm. But if, it's, if our natural instinct has been sort of evolved or whatever, to right. side more with the realism, then we're going to lean towards that way. And so right. it kind of plays with, you know, it, it, both sides can be justified in the conclusions that they draw f- as he's sort of waking up. Uh, right.
1: I agree. I think that's insightful. Can I read this little section? Please. Um, Rip, it says Rip looked and beheld a precise counterpart of himself as he went up the mountain, apparently as lazy and certainly as ragged. (laughs) The poor fellow was now completely confounded. He doubted his own identity and whether he was himself or another man. And in the midst of his bewilderment, the man in the cocked hat demanded who he was and what was his name. "'God knows,' exclaimed he at his wit's end. "'I'm not myself. I'm somebody else. "'That's me, yonder. No, that's somebody else. "'Got into my shoes. "'I was myself last night, but I fell asleep on the mountain, "'and they changed my gun, and everything's changed, "'and I'm changed, and I can't tell what's my name or who I am.'" Just that, to your point about fiction writing, that's just some of the most brilliant writing I've seen in a long time because it takes all of these elements of shifted identity and change. And, but you're also left wondering, well, what really even has changed, right? No. Because there's another, another version of him in the next generation before his eyes repeating the same thing that he was the child, the The father gives birth to this. Well, he doesn't give birth. The wife did. I'll just give her <laughs> the credit there, but he has this son who becomes exactly like him, but he's still so disoriented He's in the same place but a different time. It's I. It just brings up all of these questions of identity and magic. And to your point, David, how how we as the reader interpret the story. Um, and how and you then you just a kind of whole war to yes.
0: vision, but the people end up being the same.
1: Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and how it and, was a virtue for him to be patriotic. Until yes. now, it's now it's George Washington, and now he's a traitor. How did that happen? He's just been asleep yeah. for twenty years, right? <laughs> yeah. so, so
2: anyway, Jonathan,
1: please, yeah, yeah.
2: no, I, I, it it to to your point of identity. If you if you've lived for twenty years, are you more yourself if you haven't changed in twenty years, or if you have changed in twenty years? Right, exactly. Yeah. And so the the Rip Van Winkle the Rip Van Winkle Jr in some ways is, I'm about to get confused myself. Talking <laughs> to, but, but, or, or to your point about what does patriotism mean? Right. right? I'm a, he says, I'm, I'm just a good subject of, of George the mm-hmm. Third. and 20 years later to say that is to speak treason. Yes. Yes. And what but happened if you fell still asleep for 20 years and came back today? Think about the political, right. you know, I'm just a family values voter. Well, what does that even mean anymore?
1: Right, right. That's so That's so true, which I, I think is so interesting having just read Wendell Berry and the importance of place. We've been talking so much about place on the podcast. And here we have a person who is in the same place and completely disoriented and now no longer even knows what he is because he's in a different time.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, obviously, it's not a critique of Wendell Berry because this was mm-hmm. a couple of years before Wendell Berry. But, <laughs> um, hmm. but the confidence with which Wendell Berry talks about place, um, and in those places, you know, I, this, this song gets very complicated. But, but the, um, but we think of place as being, even though people change, places change much more slowly. And, mm-hmm. and that's not what's going on. That's not what has happened in this story
1: hmm yes so like i said i don't i everything is there i just wish it could be further explored i would i would have loved to see some of this play out in conversations
0: um, i mean isn't yeah. that sort of i mean we sort of all instinctively feel that about a lot of writing oh yes the, from this sort of era that's American true. or otherwise, I mean, well, we're kind of describing that's that sort of writing, particularly in fiction, has has evolved a lot and mm-hmm. a lot since 1820. I mean, the novel was still a relatively young form, and the short story mm-hmm. as a formal thing was certainly a, a a young form and didn't really come into its own until. I mean, I don't know. I would argue the Jonathan. What do you think? The glory days of the short story in 1890 to 1960. Well,
2: Planner Connor died in 1964
0: so we can <laughs> 1964. Yeah. Yeah. And there were I mean there's obviously many great story writers <laughs> af- after her. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Many of them last but um, <clears throat> but one of the other things is if he's he's trying to carve out, you know, if we, if we talk about this idea of carving out an American voice, right? A literary mm-hmm. identity. And at the same time that's sort of reflecting a people who are trying to carve out their own identity and the the act of the war itself was the ultimate carving out of of an individual identity for, Mm -hmm. for the nation. But then what Mm -hmm. happens after that? What happens after you've, in theory, you've, you sort of ostensibly created your own, your own place, right? Now what happens? And I think that's one of the big questions that it's asking. Like what happens, like, how do you, how do you, how do you go on without sort of still bringing with you all the baggage of what what you left you Mm can't i mean even though you've you've you fought a war that for eight years and you've created a unique form of government and you've created your own individual towns like big big from a big ideas perspective that's great right but what does Mm -hmm. that mean for the people who are living on the ground who are living in who are walking in the forests and fighting the bears and uh, arguing in the taverns and teaching in the schools and um you know right. uh which goes you know which is a big part of what um uh, well, um the, uh, the sleepy hollow stories about right um, like you can do all those things in theory but what does that mean for the individual people and it's the mm-hmm. same way you know i think that mirrors what, what's what's happening here with literature right you can you can sort of say you can sort of mark a place where you're creating a new canon where you're creating a new sort of form or your own unique voice but what does that mean in terms of the actual life of the works themselves and the actual activity the actual creative activity of creating literature because you can't you can't you don't do that in a vacuum right like right there's there's influences and things like that that inform how you do that and i feel like washington irving is um sort of he's sort of revealing probably somewhat purposefully and then probably somewhat goes beyond whatever he was capable of doing on purpose. He's sort of revealing the challenges of doing that because there is something unique, but there's also something, um, borrowed about what he's about, what he's doing from a, from a, from a literary perspective. Yeah. that, That is, I can't decide as I, as I
2: read, I read this story twice and I kept trying to decide to what extent, you know, does this how American does this feel? I I, I can't mm. I can't decide. Um, right, but it feels just about right. It feels about how about how American it ought to feel in eighteen nineteen, or or maybe when he's describing this era, where again straddling that twenty years, we uh. went from you know he was a, he was a colonist when he went to sleep and he was a, a citizen mm-hmm. when he woke up, mm. and uh. you know that's it, it's appropriate that this story itself straddles the you know the Uh european fairy tale and this other kind of storytelling Mm -hmm. yeah i agree you know
0: do you think let's talk about the character of rip for uh, for Mm -hmm. himself so he falls asleep a british a british loyalist right proudly Mm -hmm. loyal to the crown he wakes up, still proudly loyal to the crown, but finds it very easy to switch over. <laughs> right. So yeah. I I can't help but wonder: had he been alive, w- what choice would he have made? I mean, not alive, mm. but awake. So, like, would he mm-hmm. have been the Tory who ends up getting tarred and feathered and chased off, or would he have been the rebel? We'll call them um, mm. the one who the one who is trying to get out of the the yoke of tyranny of King George which mirrors rip's own desire to get out of the yoke of tyranny of his um, his his wife who right you know, controls him I um,
2: can't imagine him being enough of a Tory to get himself tarred and feathered <laughs> right exactly right um, yeah. but he certainly wasn't a, a very good rebel when it came to his wife either huh yeah so this, I think it's, it's very um, interesting that his that his gift here turns out to be that he is a better sleeper than anybody who's ever
0: lived <laughs> how how, I wonder if, if Washington Irving's asking or kind of pointing out how many people just sort of slept, walked, slept, walked, yeah. sleepwalked their way through the uh-huh. country. Like how many people right. got dragged along by the rich people? You know, how many people that right. lived in the Catskills got dragged along by Virginia and, you know, I mean, the elite, yeah. right. so to speak, the one of the war? Like, right. And they just kind of slept, slept, sleepwalked their way through and they just decided to go with whatever they woke up to. Right. Like, they just made their place with whatever. And they would have been fine making a place in the Catskills, even if if they were still subjects of the crown. Because how mm-hmm. much did right. it actually matter to the people who were living in the Catskills fighting the bears? Right.
1: <laughs> right. Well, and I yeah. think that that is the purpose of the nagging wife in the story. She's not necessary. Like you pointed out, we didn't even, we never even meet her. So she, the only reason for her is to mirror. Britain in the war. So yeah, she. Mayor King George. Yes, yes. That he has somehow escaped from under this tyranny that he chose for himself, right? He married her. Uh, and mm. while he. Which, by the way, as a side note, I've never thought about the past tense of the word sleepwalk before. Yeah, right. <laughs> I now I'm trying to. Trust, should I say sleepwalk?
2: sleepwalk you could just say somnambulated <laughs> we knew <laughs> right. somnambulated works yeah I, yep, do, I mean I, I was believe definitely word we should have used.
1: <laughs> just about to say that
2: <laughs> the professional so comes with that you beat me to
1: it yes <laughs> so let, what, how do you say it somnambulated somnambulated <laughs> okay sleptwalked walked um, <laughs> so, um, through see I mean I think that's brilliant David I think he is saying wake up like this wake up America. We're going to wake up to something new here. Uh, and I, I had just, I hadn't put the sleep, the sleepwalking thing together yet, but I did notice the wife that's gotta be her purpose as she is Britain.
0: Mm. Well, it, there's a, there's a section where he, he kind of, he's kind of describing the political climate for a while when he's talking uh-huh. about how she bothers him so right. it says, Riven Winkle, however, was one of those happy mortals of foolish, well-oiled disposition to take the world easy, eat white bre- bread or brown, whichever can be got with the least thought <laughs> or trouble, and would rather uh-huh. starve on a penny than work for a pound. Oh, if he right. himself, he would have whistled life away in perfect contentment. But his wife kept continually dinning in his ears about his idleness, his carelessness, and the ruin he was bringing on his family. So there's mm-hmm. that point. And in some ways, I feel like what people who went to the new world wanted... We should just be left alone right and so in, right. The sa- in sort of the same way maybe they weren't all as lazy you know maybe it's not exactly a one-to-one correlation but then it sure. says morning noon and night her tongue was incessantly going and everything he mm. said or did was sure to produce a torrent of household eloquence and so that makes me think of you know politically the british were constantly trying to control them constantly sending some new decree some new this this, this this the, the British eloquence, right, that comes from the crown, that comes from the um, prime minister or the you know the the British mm-hmm. aristocracy to these poor wilderness people who really don't care at all. Um, right. Rip had but one way of replying to all lecturers of the kind and that by frequent use had grown into a habit. He shrugged his shoulders, shook his head, cast up his eyes, but said nothing. This mm-hmm. how... And so they try to ignore... He tries to ignore her for a while, right? Um, which is what, in some ways, the American those the early colonists tried to do this however always provoked a fresh volley from his wife which is a very like warfare metaphor right yes yes um so that he was fain to draw off his forces again doesn't want you you know he couldn't uh-huh. quite draw off his forces and take to the outside of the house the only side which in truth belongs to a henpecked husband right um, and rope's sole domestic adherent was his dog wolf who was as much henpecked henpecked as his master um mm-hmm. So, I love the idea of like a wild creature. I mean, he's not, mm-hmm. the dog is actually called wolf. The yeah. wild creature right. being yes. his, his one partner. So, yes. you know, the one thing she couldn't separate him from was the wild animal. Right. Um, right. So, I love okay. all the connections so, there between British, yes. Brit- the colonists, and the British sort of crown. Yeah. So, You're I'm going
1: right. to add to that then, David, with the end of the story which is, does any, you know, the question really is then, does anything change? And I'd have to say no, because in spite of all of that, right? Like we I I referenced the Shakespearean green world before. Like in the European stories, you have a magical experience and you're transformed. Like then you get to marry the princess. Then you get, uh, the, the story ends with a wedding and a happily ever after, but not here, right? Rip now resumed his old walks and habits. He soon found many of his former cronies, though all rather the worse for the wear and tear of time, and preferred making friends among the rising generation with whom he soon grew into great favor. That's the same as before, right? He yeah. he, he, told, he told kids stories. Having nothing to do at home and being arrived at that happy age when a man can be idle with impunity, so now he has nothing even to make him, not even a nagging wife. He took his place once more on the bench at the door and was reverenced as one of the patriarchs of the village and a chronicle of the old times before the war. This is how he ends his life, is going into maybe, is it another long sleep? I don't know. But hmm. this didn't result in anything except a short amount of disorientation in which he then resumes his old place. Yeah. So welcome to American Realism.
2: <laughs> and can I return to thirteen going on thirty? Yeah, yeah, please do. I've been waiting for this moment. So, another time travel story where somebody uh-huh. becomes herself. Now the difference is she's it. Literal, it's literal, literal time travel where things have happened in her own life. You know that, that she jumps into her thirty-year-old body, and and I. I do have a soft spot for that movie um, uh-huh. because it, it, some of its its approach to say fornication I can't approve of, but but the there there <laughs> things that I, I like
0: quite a bit. Just got to get yeah. that out there. <laughs> What's <that? laughs> You just got to get that disclaimer out there. Yeah,
2: right. I, 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 that's right. So uh,
1: the close reads podcast does not endorse fornication. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, right. But but I love the way you know she has missed all this, whereas Rick Van Winkle has has. Missed change in the world but there's been no change in him. Yes. his old old self in a new world. Um the the girl in 13 going on 30 wakes up 17 years later in a, in a new world where she has changed completely and she can draw back on who she really was at age 13 and sort of set things right again. And huh. it's a very different um I mean it's it's a whole story in a way that mm-hmm. that we were saying that you know this this isn't a whole story, and uh, David, I appreciate your your reminder that the short story or even the novel wasn't fully developed at this point, and mm-hmm. it's not quite, quite fair um, to right. to um, criticize Washington Irving for not writing a 21st century story in the beginning of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, but but there's the, the uh, Heidi. I didn't even it didn't even occur to me the extent to which this, this lazy cat, Rip Van Winkle, um, even though he's disoriented when he wakes up, he doesn't change at all. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I think you make a great point. And, um, and it's, but he, but he also, it also feels like he is a type of character that is still, um, has always been a part of certainly American culture and probably right. every culture. Um, sure This, um it, the thing about the Snopes in in the um yeah. in, in the Faulkner books I mean it, right yeah. Winkle is just he's just a Snopes really huh. um
0: and um, he's a, he's like a caricature version of Burley Coulter in some ways
1: huh yeah maybe so I like well, I like Burley much better so. right. well, that's
0: why I said <laughs> Burley's yeah. a character right. this guy's just I mean this guy's a carrot. Right. he I mean, rips the character
2: yeah what's what's the uh ally dying the 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 snopes in that one.
0: Um, oh, uh a dad, I
2: whose name escapes me but you know he he never in his his passivity in his um let's just call it passivity uh-huh. um he always manages right. to get what he wants and and he never has to change and the world around him changes and adjusts itself to him um, and that's what's happening at the end of, of Rip Van Winkle. Hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: This is right. e- even if this isn't a you know, if it doesn't have much plot. There's there's so much interesting things, so many interesting things going on here, which I didn't, I didn't realize that we started this conversation how much was going on, and uh, yeah. or how much is is failing to go on, and yes. what's going
0: on. Right. Uh, yeah. It's it's there's a lot going on, sort of. Under the surface, I guess there's a lot yeah. more going on in the subtlety, and
2: so that that stasis in the character of Rip Van Winkle that we all we we may think of as a as a fault in a uh, later short story or in you know in thirteen going on thirty, there's all that character change. It's it's really it's really fun. It's really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. What's interesting here is a is a, a stasis that right has its
0: own force pretty interesting Mm -hmm. yeah that's a a great way of putting a stasis that has a has its own force
2: Hmm. Uh, Yeah,
0: because there is lots of stasis that doesn't have force and i think the great great works of art can end even even great works of art that that end with change where where something has evolved or, or grown or not grown um a lot of them still end with stasis and it doesn't really it doesn't truly capture us unless it has some sort of force behind it right Um, i'm gonna remember that i like that phrase stasis Mm -hmm. with force or something i don't know how did you put that
1: (laughs) i thought you were gonna remember
0: (laughs) it yeah good job remembering it that's why that's why i'm saying
2: i think i said it's a stasis that has a kind of force maybe Yeah. yeah something it's recorded. You can go back and, and listen. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Why would I do that? Um, well, let's go. We've been going for plenty of time now, so I'd love to get some final thoughts from either of you on this. If you have anything else you'd like to add,
2: um, this story reminded me of the, the first time I understood, um, what one could do with Twitter was, a, <laughs> uh, in, in 2011, we had, um, in Nashville, um, the, the 13-Year Cicadas came out,
0: mm.
2: and somebody started a Twitter feed called Nashville Cicada. <laughs> and so this, it was, the Cicada had a, had its own Twitter feed, and it would, it would make comments about life in America, and specifically in Nashville, that it had missed <laughs> over the last 13 years. And it was so <laughs> funny. it would say things like, you know, because it was 1998, the last time the, the cicadas had come. And it would say things like, uh, "So I'm I'm guessing that y 2 k thing worked out all right." Or, or, <laughs> you know, a guy just laughed at me when I asked him where the nearest blockbuster was, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> and then some some real specific Nashville related stuff that was just it was just hilarious. And it was the first time I really um, uh, liked Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, another thing he said was I'm about, I'm about to turn this sack of beanie babies into this month's rent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: that's awesome i Aaron couldn't I possibly follow that so i have no no further thoughts
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's that twitter's account still out there
1: It is. Yeah.
2: Uh, i went back to look at it to see uh, if it was still there and it is <laughs> nashville cicada
1: got it
0: <laughs> man now people are gonna be looking up the 13 year cicada though that's people that's what people really should look up yeah right um, <laughs> Well, thanks to you both for joining me. Um it's been great having you on uh Mr. Mr. Rogers. Um yeah, it has been a lot of fun. And uh so it's The Habit, the newsletter is The Habit and the, where can people sign up for the, for that?
2: Uh jonathan-rogers.com over on the left. Um okay, it says perfect. The Habit.
0: Yeah. And are you on Twitter following the the 13 year security? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, it's it's not doing anything. It's it's gone back underground until okay. 2024.
0: <laughs> Are you? <laughs> I should be. Is there a place people can follow you on there to keep up with what you're up to, or would you prefer people not follow you on Twitter? Yes.
2: <laughs> they would be very disappointed and sad if they followed me <laughs> on Twitter.
0: All right, fair enough. Um, well, again, thanks to Augustine College for sponsoring the podcast. Remember to check out a Perpetual Feast with uh, Wes Callahan and Andrew Kern talking about Homer. And don't forget that next week we will uh, be on here discussing An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce. Um, and that is readily available all over the internet. So I think you will enjoy that. It's another another story that's got some strange mysteries to it that takes American literature uh, up to that next level, I think. It's the next stage, anyway, in its development. So uh, thank you to Jonathan Rogers and thank you to Heidi White for joining me. Thanks to everyone who's been listening and we will be back next week with another episode of close reads. Happy reading.